I think when you feel right, you feel strong. You feel happy, you feel free. You just need to do what you want. Anything you, you love, you must go for it until the end. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Right Feeling Podcast. Summer is still here, so I hope that you're still soaking up some of that sun. I really can't believe that it's already August. Um, The time just seems to be passing by faster and faster now that I'm older. But anyway, today I have my friend Marin on this podcast. We talk about resilience, about the heavy topic of cancer, and about accepting the lack of control that we often have in life and making the most of what we can actually control. Marin and I go back a few years already. I can't believe it's been a few years. It feels like I just met her yesterday. Um, but yeah, we met in grad school in London. We were both studying science communication and we've traveled to Athens together. We've done high intensity interval training together. And I always enjoy the conversations that I have with Marin. And I'm really happy to be sharing one of our conversations with you. So if you can just give a very warm welcome from wherever you're listening to Marin. Welcome to the podcast, Marin. Thank you for having me, Jane. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so excited because I love, <laughs> love, love this podcast. So it's it's a huge honor to be on. Thank you for having me. Oh, Marin, I'm seriously so glad that you were willing to even talk about, you know, what you're about to talk about with me on yeah, this podcast. I think it'll be good. We are going to talk <laughs> mm-hmm. about some um, traumatizing situations. Uh, Ooh, just lo- a disclaimer. <laughs> just a little disclaimer. Cancer, things like that. So, you know, just make sure that you're in the right space to listen to that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, Marin, why don't you introduce yourself? Of course. So my name is Marin Hunsberger, and I'm a science communicator. I studied science. I'm a microbiologist by trade, I suppose. But now what I do is I make multimedia products about science. I make videos trying to explain sort of everyday scientific phenomena or things that are going on in particular labs. Like I have a couple clients who are um, laboratories who want to talk about their science to the general public. So trying to make Mm -hmm. science a little more accessible, a little more relatable, something that people can really connect with. So what we're going to talk about today is just a little bit different than science communication. (laughs) Well, Um, it's different but surprisingly related. (laughs) That is also true. So yeah, Marin, what has been going on in your life? So for the past six months, my partner of five years was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a kind of blood cancer. And um, and I have a couple of things that I really want to say up here at the top when I'm sort of introducing um, this topic, mm-hmm. which is that I think um, things like this are really difficult to talk about in general because they're obviously very emotional. But uh, I've really struggled with like facing people's people's perceptions of what we've been through based on how situations like this are portrayed in in pop culture media. I'm thinking particularly of like movies about cancer. I kind of, 
I've always thought this, but especially now that we've been through it a little more in our own lives, obviously they're not accurate. They they need to have a narrative. And so I find that these more pop culture media narratives about cancer, like The Fault in Our Stars, for example, like they didn't mean to do this, but movies like that often take a really traumatic, horrible time in someone's life and sort of romanticize and glorify it, I think. Mm -hmm. And I really want to emphasize that that's not what I'm trying to convey here. Like we're going to talk about some of the things that I've sort of learned and taken away from this life experience, but it is not in any way trying to say that this ended up being such a good thing. Like given like a, a microsecond of a heartbeat, I would never have had this happen to us. And it's the most horrible, agonizing, awful thing I've ever been through. And so I just want to make that really clear at the top that like the things we're going to talk about are not silver linings. They're not good things. They're not like, I'm so glad this happened because now I know this. I just want to make sure that we were coming from that place. And then also, obviously, I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of a partner of someone who has had cancer. I have not personally had cancer. So I'm going to talk about these things happening to me, but obviously I'm on my very own separate journey from the person who actually has the cancer. I don't want anybody to feel like I'm sort of claiming ownership that the the actual thing happened to me. That I think I just wanted to also emphasize because I know that, you know, cancer survivorship is a a really tight-knit community and I I am not someone who has been through that. I am someone who has been through being adjacent to it. <laughs> and so it was just such a bizarre, surreal situation because he's the healthiest person I've ever met in my life. I mean, you know him, Jane. I'm not going to say his name because I want to protect his privacy. We can just call him M. Um, Marin, I remember when you were talking about M, he never, what, never ate sweets? Yeah, doesn't eat dessert. Like, he was always working out. didn't Didn't drink coffee. Like, he didn't like to ever sort of alter his body in any way like he wouldn't he wouldn't Mm -hmm. even take Tylenol for a headache he'd be like nah I just don't really feel like putting that in my body like the healthiest person I've ever ever met in my entire life strongest physical person I've ever met in my entire life and um, he started having just sort of some um, stomach discomfort and because obviously he's so healthy me and our roommate were like oh I don't know man maybe you have like a milk allergy. I mean, and looking back on this now, I feel so dumb, but you know, maybe you should just stop drinking milk or like when it got a little more serious, I was like, hey, yeah, you should definitely go to the doctor. Maybe it's a stomach ulcer, you know? So those were sort of the level of things we were thinking about. And I mean, another point is that he's quite young, you know? Yeah, he's we're, not we're 25. 60. Yep. I don't think that people who are in this age typically associate sickness with ourselves. Exactly. So so that when, when we got the call from his doctor with some test results, we were sitting at the dining room table. He was about to eat a burrito. And then, you know, the doctor says, we're pretty sure you have lymphoma. And it was like, what? <laughs> I mean, you. it just, I can't emphasize enough how much it doesn't feel real. Um, it feels like it's not happening to you. It feels like they're going to call back and say, this was a mistake. I'm so sorry. We were reading somebody else's test results. You're fine. It's all fine. And so I, I think it takes a really, really, really long time for that to sink in and for that mm-hmm. to be real. And then on top of it all, the kind of lymphoma he ended up having is called Burkitt's lymphoma. And it's about 1% of all adult non-Hodgkin's lymphomas in the developed world. 
it progresses a lot faster than other lymphomas. We talk about doubling time when we talk about cancer, which means how fast it takes for the tumor mass to double in size. And non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has the fastest doubling time. It's 25 hours. So in in 25 hours, you could have double the tumor mass than you did um, 25 hours ago. And the problem was that cytology results, so like the test results that you take a biopsy of your tumor to try and see what kind of lymphoma it is, because you need to know the specific kinds that you can treat it with a certain kind of chemotherapy therapy because you need to um, tailor the chemo to the cancer. So you need to know what kind it is before you start treatment. But the problem is those results take weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to come back. And with different kind of lymphoma, that's okay because you have that time. Whereas with this cancer, we did not have that time. So in, in the time that it took to get a biopsy, by that point, he already needed to be hospitalized and was going into organ failure. So um, that was obviously like very traumatizing because you you put your trust in the doctors to tell you what to do and to tell you how they're going to handle your um your situation and then when it turns out that things become critical and things become very serious much faster than the healthcare world is handling it you start to just sort of lose lose that trust that's something that i've been struggling with since the end of the journey just to spoil it for everyone i guess just to take the tension out of the out of the room um we have gotten a diagnosis of remission 6 months later so that's a, a huge relief but at the same time because the beginning of the process was so unpredictable and so unexpected and got so serious so fast it's been pretty difficult for me and i think for him as well to sort of settle into that feeling of safety because we have had that trust dashed a little bit um, in that like, okay, you said he was fine at the beginning and then he wasn't. And so, uh, you know, now that we're at the end here, um, is that true too? So that's been tough to grapple with for sure. Yeah. And Marin, if I can ask, you know, when you guys first heard the news, when you were sitting at your dining table, M eating his burrito, um, and of course that moment was probably really surreal. But were there any other emotions that were going on in you at that time? Like, was there any fear or anything like that? Oh, my God. Huge fear. <laughs> Huge mm -hmm. fear. I think, um, you know, like we talked about as young people, um, it's not that like I felt many times in my life that I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, you know, most of my life, I feel like I've had no idea what I'm doing. But also for, for most of that time, I felt like my my lack of understanding and my lack of foresight of like, oh, I don't know, I'm just going to try this out and see what happens, um, hasn't had very high stakes really uh, in that there's nothing necessarily huge or life-altering to a certain point that's going to come of making a certain decision. Like, for example, moving to London. I've never been to London before. I was going to move there for a whole year and go to grad school. And I was like, I don't know if I should do this. This seems <laughs> risky. And just did it anyway and was like, ah, you know, whatever happens, happens. I can deal with it. Um, and, and to a certain extent, my life has been a, a continuing journey of trying to cultivate that kind of resilience, resilience to change, resilience to um, difficult situations, which so far in my life had just been being alone in a new country and not knowing anybody and not knowing what I'm going to do after and, you know, things yeah. like that, which at the time seemed really difficult. Whereas in a situation like this, feeling like you don't know what you're doing and you don't know what to do is literally life-threatening. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I can imagine that in addition to fear, there was also the additional layer of hopelessness. I think so too. I think um especially in that in the first 
couple weeks where he wasn't in the hospital yet and we still didn't know that it was this aggressive kind of cancer. He was in a lot of pain and um I couldn't do anything about it. And and that feeling of total helplessness and lack of control was the most overwhelming, the most difficult, the most terrifying thing. I mean, it's like jumping off a cliff with no parachute. You're like, I can do nothing about this totally untenable, dangerous situation. We are about to crash into the ground and I do not know what to do. I mean, just just like complete chaos. Uh, feeling totally lost in that. Feeling like like it, you're drowning in it. Like there's nothing you can do. So it, in a certain sense, like being hospitalized and having the doctors be in charge was a huge relief because I was like, okay, there are people here who know what they're doing. I'm not the one in charge anymore. You know, when we were at home and he was in pain, it was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not qualified for this. I, I felt like I was responsible for his life and I just, I couldn't, um, I, I, I did not feel like I could handle that responsibility. So, yeah. And it didn't stop being that way in the hospital. Like that feeling did not go away. The panic was still there. The lack of control was still there. I think that's something that's been pervasive throughout the whole experience is just a total lack of control. I mean, as the bystander, you can't do anything. You're not administering medicine. Like the only thing you can do is be there. Usually with a lymphoma, you come in every two weeks for chemotherapy or or every so often, and then you go home and recuperate, and then you come back for some more treatment. Whereas because his um, cancer was so aggressive, his chemo regimen needed to be so aggressive. So he was in the hospital for four months straight, um, which is not typical for a, a lymphoma treatment. And um, it was a lovely hospital. The doctors were lovely, but we were also on a ward where, you know, people um, people died all the time and um, people had crashes all the time. You know, when you hear code blue, you know that someone's crashing and it was... Um, that's a very difficult place to literally live because um, I stayed every night in the hospital with him so he wouldn't have to be alone. That's You're exposed to all of this trauma that's not even yours sometimes all the time. Um, and obviously, like the person you're there with, you know, has good days and bad days, but often is going through some really, really difficult things because the chemo just like completely brutalizes your body. Yeah. And I mean, if you're surrounded by that all the time where you do hear code blue and you know that people are not making it through the night, it does also affect your mentality and how you feel about it. Obviously, your thoughts are hopeful, but at the same time, it's affected by everything that's going on around you. Oh, you know? totally, totally. Being exposed to such a high stress situation over such a long period of time. I mean, when you're going through that the whole four months, there is no moment of relief. There is no moment where you know you're going to be okay. And even when they release you from the hospital, they wait quite a while to do your final um, tests to, to be able to give you the diagnosis of remission. And so even then, like they just send you home and you're like, I have no idea. He could still be sick. We could still have to go back. You know, we're not in the hospital anymore, but this is not over. <laughs> um, so, so that was tough. So being exposed to that kind of, that level of stress for so long is such a weight and it gets heavier over time. Um, and yes, your resilience muscles build up to be able to handle it to some extent, but also, I mean, it just wears you down. And I would find that the littlest things, you know, like, uh, so uh, sort of using the weight metaphor, like all of my big muscles were, 
being used to hold up this horrible weight of what was happening to us. And the littlest things would be like the pebble on the ground that made me trip and fall. Like I was just walking down the street and I saw two dogs on the sidewalk and their owner had just stepped inside for a cup of coffee, but it was raining and it was cold and they were little and they were like tied to the street post and they were crying (laughs) and shivering. And I just broke down in absolute tears. Not necessarily because that thing was making me feel that way, but it's just the smallest triggers can really bring you down. And I guess I just, I I needed someone to tell me and I had people who did and I was really grateful tell me that it's okay to feel that way, that it's okay to break down. It's okay not to feel like you can carry the weight anymore and you have to um, have people help you help you carry it, I think. Yeah. At what point, Marin, did you end up feeling like you accepted the fact that you didn't have control? Ooh. Or um, do you still feel like you still want to hold on to as much as you possibly can? Yeah. I think, and we, we've talked about this before too, is like I, I have known this and I have felt this, but never in such a visceral way. Never has it smacked me in the face with like, you have to confront this right now because it's happening mm-hmm. to you with sort of the lack of control that we have over everything in our lives. I could walk outside and get hit by a car tomorrow and it would all be done. And I just, we just have so little control over what happens to us in our lives. And something like this makes you obviously really realize that and confront your own mortality and confront sort of the, the chaotic, uncaring nature of the universe. And I think it can, it can make you feel a couple of different ways. I think it can make you feel really nihilistic. Literally nothing matters. We have no control over anything. We live on a tiny speck in a gigantic universe in a galaxy that's swirling towards a black hole. So literally just nothing matters. Um, And that to me is sort of like a depressive nihilism that definitely I had days where I was like, I'm just not going to get out of bed because nothing matters. And that's okay. Like it's okay to feel that way. I think it also like can make you feel a little bit nihilistic in more of a, a hedonistic way. Like nothing matters. So do whatever the fuck you want. Rob a bank, you know, do cocaine, whatever. Nothing matters. Marin, I'm trying to imagine you robbing a bank. <laughs> hey, I could do it, Jane. Um, you know, but but just sort of like, fuck the rules. Nothing matters. And And then also the other flip side of that is, yeah, okay, nothing matters. Maybe our lives are meaningless and and so tiny in the grand scheme of things but then doesn't that make it all the more important what you do with that tiny life Mm -hmm. for the other tiny lives around you and I don't think it's that I necessarily took away just one of those I think I still I still feel um very viscerally connected to all three of those options but the eventual takeaway after the immediate really crisis stress now that we're in remission the things that i'm thinking about are more along the lines of man this is about to sound like a fridge magnet this is about to sound so cliche and i never want people who are going through it to hear someone like me say something like this and be like yeah right bullshit go take that somewhere I'm else i'm getting ready to print this out and put it on my <laughs> i mean it's literally just life is short <laughs> Like life is too short to worry about what people think. And I think that's sort of my interpretation and the way that I'm taking that more nihilistic viewpoint into into my life going forward is that like, it just has connected me so much more to the parts of myself that are like, fuck it, do what you want. Do what Mm -hmm. you want. Life is too short. Sometimes my innermost self is like, well, just don't, don't do that yet because you don't know that person that well, or don't, don't say these things because these people might think this thing. Whereas now I just feel so much more that 
it it doesn't matter what you do so it matters who you are i don't know it, it, it's kind of confusing yeah. to try and think and talk about but like nothing matters so everything matters a little more <laughs> yeah and i almost feel that this is slightly a paradox in yes. the face of lack of control you find control in your own life. Yes. It kind of gives you a little more freedom. Yeah. And you're just making the most out of the time that you do have, you know, yes. because the thing is, is that no one is promised tomorrow mm -hmm. and people live their daily lives, never considering their mortality, mm -hmm. never considering that human beings are fragile. But at the end of the day, something as simple as bumping into something or like mother nature, you know, lightning strikes, we are fragile and our bodies are fragile and we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. So it's so true. I think there has always been the part of me that has known that obviously, you know, our, our mortality is very fragile and, and we do not have tomorrow, but you do not really know it in the, in the, in the very true sense until you've mm -hmm. been, until you've been in a situation like this, I think. And, um, I have always been the kind of person who has been a little too busy for everything. Like, oh man, you know, I, I'm not going to see that friend this week because I've got too much to do. I'm not going to go to yoga today because I got to finish this thing. Sort of yeah. pushing things back because I'm very ambitious and I, I have a lot of things that I want to accomplish and do. And for me, one of the ways in which the results of this situation are sort of manifesting itself in my life is like, no, I'm going to call my mom today because today is all I have control over. It's made so much more real for me the idea that the time is going to pass no matter what, and you have to make the absolute most of it. And it's not only like the the confrontation of the mortality or the fragility of our lives, but also when living through that kind of trauma, when carrying that weight again for such a long time, I could only get through one day at a time. Like I, I could only think about today because if I thought about anything else, especially when we weren't sure what was going to happen with M's disease, like if we weren't, we weren't sure if he might live. Um, it was about, I cannot think about that. I can't, if you, if you try to think about that, it's going to be too much. It's going to be too heavy. It's going to be too hard. And so you think about what you can do today. What can you do with the day that you have right now? The moment that you have right now is sort of this forced mindfulness. Um, and again, I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying that's something that people should aspire to because I, I, I obviously wouldn't wish this on anybody. And I don't think you need something like this to make you feel that way. But um, No, definitely not. But I, I think this is part of the resilience that we're talking about, right? I mean, Marin, a lot of people turn down the path of complete nihilism and they just decide that life isn't worth it at that point in time. To me, it can be hard to talk about it in terms of resilience because I did not feel very resilient. I guess, um, you know, we're talking about people who choose um, more self-destructive coping mechanisms in situations like this. I, I feel um, really connected to that because I felt that way. And uh, I can so easily see how it would be the choice that someone would make. It, do it does feel like survival. And what can mm. you do to survive this? What can you do to get through this? And then once you sort of figure out what you think um, is working for you in that way, like maybe it's mindfulness, it's what can you do with the day you have today? What kind of help can you get from the people around you that will help you get through this? Then, especially once you get to a little more of a less crisis mode place, like maybe you're in remission, you're still dealing with a lot of anxiety, but you have to transition back into quote unquote normal life again. You're not in the hospital. You're you're not receiving treatment. 
what do you do with all of that anxiety? What do you do with all of that previous trauma? How do you how do you carry that with you into the rest of your life? And I think then that's when um, survival can become a little more resilient. So how how can you relax into yes, I only have today, but I'm going to enjoy it a little more than I feel like I could have before um, because my mind isn't so stuck in panic. And I think it's, it's again, easier some days than others. It's not easy. Um, and I don't think you can do it alone. Like for me, in the ways that I was saying, the little things broke me. <laughs> um, the little things also really saved me. Um, my favorite example is one of the things that I would do when I would come home from being with M in the hospital, I would just like turn on some really mindless, fun TV. Brooklyn Nine-Nine was my TV show of choice. It was perfect. <laughs> really funny, really, really um, hilarious. Absolutely nothing, uh, nothing triggering in there. <laughs> but the problem was that I was watching it on Hulu and Hulu has advertisements if you don't have premium. And because I'm a scientist and I'm a science communicator and I wanted to know more about Burkitt's lymphoma, I was looking up all kinds of things about his cancer online and Google Google knows this and was serving me targeted advertisements in the ad breaks of Brooklyn Nine-Nine for like end-of-life cancer drugs because fuck Big Pharma. Google, ugh. Um, yeah. And that was obviously like so much harder than it sounds, I guess. But again, like the little things really get to you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're just trying to relax and escape from what exactly. you have been facing the entire day. Of course, the advertisement comes on and you're like, God damn it. Google, if you are listening to this right now, stop it's seriously true. stop it's true or if you're going through something like this um definitely do all that research on incognito mode because then you will be saved from oh, this yeah. somebody told me that and i was like oh obviously duh that's so smart um but then again like <laughs> i posted it on social and a friend of mine was like girl just use my premium account here's the login you won't have to deal with the advertisements and that sounds like such a tiny thing but for me at the time it made my whole day <laughs> i mean it is it is it's what got me through that day without, I don't know, like getting blackout drunk. Cause, cause that is the instinct. I need to escape from what's happening to me right now. I need to not feel mm -hmm. the way I'm feeling. What can I do to do that? And for some people, yeah. that's drugs. For some people, that's, um, other self destructive coping mechanisms. I was just using television, but like then little things like this happen to <laughs> Brooklyn you. Brooklyn Nine Nine. <laughs> Brooklyn Nine Nine, drug of choice. Um, and, and it can really tip you over the edge. And so the little things, kept me afloat, kept me from totally spiraling, um, knowing that you guys are our grad school friends. You guys are all in Europe, but Katie sent me like this really cute card with dogs on it. And it, it just made me feel so connected to you, even though you guys are far away. You guys would text and, and the little things really made all the difference. So when we talk about resilience, I find it hard to talk about it in just in the context of me, because I could not have done it alone without the people who helped me. Um, and my work family, like Emma and I aren't married. And so in the state of California, I am not covered under the laws that would keep my employer from firing me because I needed to be out of work for so long. Like I was working remotely from the hospital, but I couldn't be on site because um, I still needed to make money. But um, they were really there for me. They said, your job is safe. It is here for you when you come back. We are here for you. They like sent food without even asking. And I, I know, um, and this is not to be dramatic, this is not to be over the top, but like I would not have found reasons to survive this experience if it weren't for the people who were there for me and carried me through it. So mm. I can't talk about resilience without talking about letting other people help you through it because you can't do it alone. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> mm. 
And I think that's probably one of the biggest, um, <clears throat> again, I'm going to use the word takeaways, even though I hate it because that's not the vibe that I want to be giving off from this, yeah. um, this experience. But um, again, I am a very independent, um, ambitious person and I find it really difficult to ask for help. And I think that that's something that you and I have in common. That's something that a lot of um, ambitious young women that I know have in common. Um, it's hard to yeah. ask for help because you don't want to open yourself up to criticism. It can sometimes feel like, oh, if I have to ask for help, I'm not good enough to do it on my own. I'm not doing a good enough job. I'm, I'm a failure in some way. Yeah. And it's also like you want to be strong for your partner as well. Already, M was going through so much, right? The last thing you wanted to do, I'm sure, was to make him feel like he couldn't rely on you. Exactly. I know that because my dad also had cancer and my mom also experienced a very similar thing where she just kept to herself for so, so long. Mm -hmm. And she just internalized everything because she wanted to be strong for the entire family. You know, she wanted to be strong for my dad, of for course. me, my sister. And she was worn out at the mm -hmm. end of the day. Mm -hmm. And I mean, she had her family to support her, but most of her friends were in Taiwan. And back then there was no Facebook, you know, right. there was, the internet was dial up, the mm. slowest thing ever. So she was very much alone in what she was going through. You know, we're talking a little bit about um, being strong for the other person and wanting to be strong enough to help support them. And, and you don't want to add to their burden at all. And so you need other people to help you carry your burden. And I actually think it can take more strength to ask for help and to rely on people and to to take care of yourself because if you don't, you can't be there for that person. And and that yeah. is ultimately the goal is, is to be supportive for the person who who has the illness. Um, and so whatever you need to do to, to make that tenable, to make that especially tenable over a long term, you know, these are marathon experiences. When you're in the thick of it, when you're the person experiencing it, it feels like it will never end. It feels like my life is never not going to be this and I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And other people can be that perspective for you. And, and you really need that. You need, I mean, almost daily, you need someone to say, like, this is not forever. This too shall pass. You know, you will not be right here exactly where you are forever. I mean, that goes for everything too. Like any bad situation that you're in, you know, it doesn't have to be cancer. It can be anything like from the loss of a job, from, you know, the loss of a, a relationship. You are not going to feel the way you feel right now forever. And it does not feel that way when you're in the middle of it, but someone needs to tell you that. Like, so that you need to have an outside voice providing the perspective that this will be different at some point in the future and you have to stick around long enough for it to be different. Yeah, because I think to echo what you were saying earlier too, Marin, you were talking a lot about survival, survival. And I think when you're in the mode of response in these times of hardships, you're trying to survive against death. You're trying to survive against loss. You're trying to survive against hardship. But I think what's beautiful about mm -hmm. resilience is that you're no longer just trying to survive, but you're really moving forward to live. Yeah, that's a really good point, Jane. That's a really good point. And that, that is definitely the distinction that I was trying to make is that in in the middle of a crisis, it doesn't feel like resilience, um, especially because it, it feels in those times that the world should just stop, right? Like this happened to us in January and we came out of it in June and it felt like I felt like it should still be January. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I felt like the whole world should have been on pause for that. And at the points at which you realize that the world wasn't on pause and you have to then jump back into the 
the quote unquote normal world, like you have to start really living your life again, it can be really scary, I think. Um, it can be really difficult to get out of that mental mode because your brain is so entrained in those patterns of crisis, like just get through today, just get through today, just get through today, that then settling into true resilience after that is, again, trying not to be in crisis mode all the time because your brain can't can't handle that anymore and instead saying okay we can relax a little bit and something that i've been doing that's been helping is um again i'm gonna fridge magnet you a little bit (laughs) but it's literally what can i enjoy today like what little thing is bringing me joy today and Mm -hmm. how can that help that's sort of been my pathway out of crisis thinking is like, okay, today I'm going to wake up and I'm going to make a cup of coffee and sit on my deck and listen to the birds before I go to work. And that is me enjoying not being in crisis anymore. (laughs) And I'm going to take that with me through the rest of my day and it's going to center me and I'm going to find little things like that throughout my day that are going to bring me a lot of joy that I am going to let myself enjoy completely fully. Like try and let it like fill up your whole being because you don't have to be holding space for something else anymore. I sort of think of it like, okay, my body is a, a vessel and it used to be filled with bright red anxiety all the time. And now I am going to try and let the little things that I'm taking a lot of joy in fill up more of me with this nice blue. And uh, I'm going to try and do that as much as I can so that it pushes all of the red out and there's no more room for any of the red and it's all blue. (laughs) (laughs) I love that you're saying this because I kid you not, two years ago, I was sitting on my couch in my living room in LA and I was thinking, when am I most at peace? And it was so strange because I don't really think of things in color most of the time, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but somehow my mind abstractly revealed to me what I felt when everything was in sync. Those colors were blue and yellow. Wow. (laughs) You know, the visuals like that really, really helped me because I think with something as big and abstract as feelings, Taking them down to the very simple pictorial and color level can help yeah, you exactly. can help you approach them in a, in a way, um, you know when you when you're facing this giant ball of anxiety and you're like I don't know what to do with this I don't know how to approach this I don't know how to fix this for me breaking it down to something really really simple can can be helpful um, and try and detrain your brain to get out of that panic loop and say you can have a moment to breathe it's going to be okay. But also being really forgiving with yourself. I think that's been a huge part of resilience for me too, is that I'm I'm also, and you know this, and I think you feel the same way. I'm also a very hyper self-critical person. Like I always want to push for the best. I want to be making the most out of everything, you know, but something that I've been working on for a long time and before this whole experience, but has been made very real and very necessary for me out of this experience is that you have to be kind to yourself. Like if I beat myself up over every time that I felt panicky, every time that I couldn't get something done because I was feeling really anxious, I would just hate myself. I would just never get over that. And it's made me practice so much more not not blaming yourself, not thinking less of yourself because you need to ask for help or because you need to take a break or because um, you're you're not feeling your best. Like you have to be yeah. kind to yourself. You have to let yourself have that because otherwise I don't think you can get through it. So I think that's a, a, a really key part of resilience to me is is being really empathetic and kind to yourself. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the bright red ball is just going to come back every now and then, but I really do hope that mm, the blue really takes over as much as possible and Thanks, that, Jane. you know, you're really able to move forward and live your life instead of just surviving. And I hope the same goes for M as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you and M both know, but seriously, um, I really hope for the best and I can't wait to see how things go from here. You Thank know? you, Jane. Yeah, I think yeah. it's important to remember just sort of like as a last note to anybody going through anything like this. Um, I am not the font of all wisdom. I know absolutely nothing, <laughs> but I hope that this was helpful <laughs> in some capacity. And also that like none of this is going to be linear. And um, yes, we want to feel better and we want to make progress mm-hmm. and we want to move on and the time again the time is going to pass so all that matters is what you do with it um but again like there will be good days there will be bad days there will be days when you feel better and days when you feel worse and that's okay that's expected um i think um I've felt very angry throughout the whole process that this is happening to us, that this is, you know, going to change our lives forever, that nothing will ever be the same. Like I've dealt with a lot of anger, which is very unfamiliar for me, I think. Like I'm not a, um, you know me, I'm not a particularly angry person (laughs) most of the time. I'm smiling. (laughs) I I try. I try my best. Um, I, I have dealt with more rage than I ever have in my entire life. And again, like totally a futile rage, like totally pointless rage because there's nobody to be mad at. (laughs) Um, But But that's what happens. You know, there's no one to blame. You can't blame life. And you just, you're trying to focus on something so that at least you can attribute something to something. Exactly. Well, and that's why I think people, you know, there's all this rhetoric around cancer of like fighting cancer or the battle Mm -hmm. with cancer. And it's like cancer is Mm -hmm. a totally neutral party in this thing, man. Like it's (laughs) not cancer's fault. This is just the way nature works. Yeah, But people need to find like an adversary. People need to find something to be battling against because it makes it mentally easier than just being fucking angry at everything all the time (laughs) with no like specific point. So I think letting go of that anger um or or trying to transmute that anger into mm. into what we've been talking about into uh yes i could i could i could go through the rest of my life being fucking mad that this happened and being being you resentful could. and being mm-hmm. um hard done upon and i think there's a part of me that will always feel that way but it yeah. is up to me in in a world where we have no control in a life where we have no control the thing that i can control is what I do with that feeling to some extent. To some extent, you don't have control over that. But to, to the extent that I do have control, I'm going to try and take that feeling and make it into living the life that I have always wanted to live. And that sounds easy and sounds simple. And it's not, again, I want to emphasize it's not linear. It's not going to all be up from here, baby. It's up and down. But again, the resilience part of that is knowing that that's going to happen, being um, kind to yourself when it does, and reaching out for help when you need to. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, that, that, I'm never going to be satisfied with the way that we talk about this because it's always going to sound like an oversimplification and like a cliche. But, you know, there's only so many words you can put to something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get that. 
But Marin, thank you so, so much for even being open to sharing everything oh, that you've been going through. It's really been my pleasure, Jane, really. I, I know it's hard to talk about. It's hard to listen to. But thank you for having me on to talk about it and for helping, helping me process it because talking helps. So thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Well, Marin, mm-hmm. to wrap this up, is there any last words you'd like to say? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I have no, like, tidbits of wisdom. Um, I think that, I think Except, that <laughs> wait, you do have fridge magnet quotes now. So <laughs> I am a walking fridge magnet now. Yes. Um, I, I just to say that, you know, everybody's experience is going to be completely unique. Everybody's going to feel totally differently about it. Everybody's going to um, take different things away from something like this. And it's OK mm-hmm. if it's not all positive. You don't have to to make the most of it. I don't know. It's I just want to emphasize that you, you can. It's up to you. It's up to you, whatever you do with it. And um, if anybody ever wants to talk about it or um, has something that they want to share, you can do so, you know, on Jane's podcast, social media, or you're welcome to find me too. I'm at Marin B.A., Marin B. uh, on Instagram. That's probably where I'm most active. I'm at Marin Beatrice on Twitter, Marin Hunsberger on YouTube, and I'm on uh, Seeker Media and Lawrence Livermore National Lab as well, making science videos. But um, you can find me online if you ever want to talk about something like this or share an experience. Feel like you can reach out. You know, if you if you don't feel like you have someone else you you can talk to about this, please find me. So. And for the listeners, Marin is really, she's such a warm person and she's so open. So if you message her, I am so sure you'll be well responded with something very open and heartwarming. (laughs) Thank you, Jane. I appreciate that. (laughs) All right. Well, Marin, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks for listening, guys. So I hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Right Feeling Podcast. Um, it's a much more of a heavy topic as far as the series spectrum goes, but I hope that you found some kind of meaning in it for yourselves. If you found it relevant or you feel that someone in your life might also need to hear something like this, feel free to share this with your friends and your family. And as always, don't forget to rate this podcast on your podcast app, and you can also follow The Right Feeling on Instagram at the right feeling underscore. So yeah, I hope that you have a great week. I can't wait to feel the feels with you on the next episode.